podcast, the only podcast where both of the hosts are 30 years away from their pensions. Uh, yeah, only <laughs> 29 and 364 to go, Amanda. I am one of your co-hosts, Travis. Joining me on the other end is other podcast co-host, Amanda. Amanda, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to receive my pension, which I think will be paid by that time in Amazon gift cards. <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would settle for like Google Play credits. I guess it could go either way. Or maybe it will be like uh, Tesla bucks. Maybe by that point... Elon yeah. Musk will have made his play for Mars or whatever and will be trading in Tesla. I don't know what it would be. Tesla, I'm trying to think of like an electricity pun here because of Nikola he Tesla. He would definitely make it into a, a funny thing. Right? Yeah, that guy like is too self-aware. Company. It makes him awful. It makes him an awful, <laughs> more awful person. I, I prefer my megalomaniac CEOs to be like completely non-self-aware. So yeah, it'll be like electri- it'll be like shock, shock bucks or something like that. Anyway, Ooh, I like that. Yes, shock bucks. We are not here today to just make jokes about Elon Musk being an absurd man, though we could do that because it's an auto industry theme day. We are here instead to begin our book club journey. This is part of the relaunch, I would say, right? We're on the first week of the new pod. We're in the Lightly Literary Pod. We've relaunched. We've set up a new feed or ideally the same feed if you're listening to this. And we are here to begin really our first deep dive episode. The new format of the pod is that we are doing one book every two weeks, which we think is a good reading pace for most people who, who want to be reading. We've chosen Janesville, an American story by Amy Goldstein to start with. And today is Friday. I believe the 5th is when this will go up. And we are here today to do a book club deep dive. So this will be analysis. We'll be talking about everything in the book, quoting the book, discussing the writing, everything. But only the first half. We decided to split the book clubs in half. So one episode will come out on week one and then second episode will come out on week two, both on Fridays. So today, Friday the 5th, we'll be covering the first half and that is pages 1 to 150 or chapters 1 to 29 of Janesville, an American Story, which is again a book by Amy Goldstein. If you are listening to this and you heard that whole description and you have not read this book at all, I guess just continue at your own entertainment desire and pleasure i suppose i'm (laughs) i'm not one to do deep dives on things i haven't experienced but i would get i guess if you're still curious or maybe you just want to hear about the book but don't want to take the time to read it i would say i guess okay to that that's i don't know fine by me we're not going to kick you out Mm -hmm. unless amanda is amanda you gonna you throwing anybody out you bouncing No, I'm very inclusive and understanding. Yeah. Yeah, it's not for me, but if you want to listen and you haven't read the book, I don't know, maybe we'll, maybe our discussion will be so thorough that you can, the listener will just think, I don't even need to read it, whatever, it was entertaining enough conversation, but you won't get the funny puns and jokes we make about getting pensions though, that won't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, why even bother? Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) We're happy for any listeners. Tell all your friends, everyone listen along. At any rate, let's get into the book club. Again, we are here to cover the first half of this book in analytical detail. If you've read with us, then hey, you're in the right place. And let's talk about what we've been reading. We want to begin with the first segment that I think I'm going to leave open-ended in the future. And we're going to try it out on this episode and then, you know, play with it in the future. We're not 100% committed to the sections and segments we've come up with for these book clubs or even the book rack, but we're going to try some stuff out today and see how it feels. I just want to begin with surprises. You could talk me through one surprise that you had, multiple surprises you had, and I did put the description of this as pleasant or otherwise. So I guess I'm angling for a pleasant surprise. But it does not have to be. It could be anything about reading this nonfiction work that took you by surprise. Amanda, why don't you begin us off with um, with a surprise that you found? 
Sure. Uh, my surprise came from the very beginning of the book, actually, which was the cast of characters. Um, so I just thought that the wording there was really interesting because this is a, a nonfiction work and the people in it aren't characters. They're actually, you know, Janesville citizens. So I was really kind of like thrown for a loop there when I first read it. And, and it made me immediately wonder if she was trying to compare um, the events in the book to a play or even a farce and, yeah. and just kind of um, giving a, a kind of opinion there without actually stating an opinion. So this 100% affected the way that I read the book because I was starting to, when I was reading, I was looking for other hints to how she felt about what was going on because of my curiosity about that particular choice of wording. So I was looking for subtle digs. I was looking for any yeah. kind of opinion that she had. <laughs> so definitely it, shaded the way that I, I read the book. It does take on the qualities of a play. Their are char characters, quote unquote, these people have kind of arcs almost some of them mm -hmm. i think a few conclusions are more or less satisfying than others i mean it's life right there's no there's right. not a moment where you can just say like oh it and then it concluded and wrapped up very neatly and nicely you know i think it, you could if you wanted to interpret it that way you could it i would say follows more tragedy than farce um especially since the whole premise is right is like mm -hmm. the town starts on a really high note we have this very reliable uh, job creator and it's man people are getting paid really well so we start at the high and then we go low so in that in that classic greek sense i think it's more tragedy than farce but there are some farcical elements to it yeah, there's no question point. about that some of these some of the people who show up are perhaps not doing the most uh, competent things I have two surprises. One is serious. Yes. One's kind of just background jokey. What people will learn about me, and maybe we should have said this at the beginning of the book club, but I'll say it now. Amanda and I are picking the books in a kind of back and forth method. Uh, I chose this book for us to read, but it was based on a prompt that Amanda gave me, which is what we're how we're picking. So I picked first, she'll pick next. But every time we pick, the other person has given us the parameters to pick within Sometimes the parameters will be fun, sometimes serious, sometimes strict, sometimes not, whatever. And Amanda gave me the parameters. Well, you can set it up. What were your, what'd you give me? What prompt did you give me? Um, I just said to choose a book about a place yeah. that you've been to. And it, That's right. And I went incredibly to. literal, took it as far as I could and picked my hometown. <laughs> so I grew up in Janesville from about... I think from about kindergarten, did I go to kindergarten in Janesville? Yeah, I did. I think kindergarten, first grade-ish, uh, up until high school when I went to college. So I would say my entire life. You could quibble and say, you know, those years I was in New Jersey before, but really my whole life. So yeah, I, I just I had been meaning to read this. I obviously lived through part of this and kind of second, I have a lot of secondhand knowledge. I have a family member who still lives there and friends. But yeah, so this, this I think was a very hometown pick for me in the most literal way. And so my surprise came on page 56 with, with this quote, there's a kind of an economic group who meets and tries to figure out what to do with local businesses once GM closes. And the quote is that um, this woman, Mary's friend, quote, offers her imposing home on the river's bluff. It is an ornate home with high ceilings, a classic European feel. And then at some point it says she opens, Mary opens the door into an elegant bathroom in this home. Uh, that is my friend's home. I have spent a lot of hours in that home. <laughs> uh, this is a this is a close friend <laughs> who I won't name just for, you know, privacy reasons, whatever. But just reading that in a book, I just had to let out a good cackle. It is a very accurate description. I will say this. It's a very beautiful home. 
it looks i think i've always thought it looks kind of spanish to me just the the siding of this home and everything but yeah it looks european it, it is on a river's bluff it's i think pretty imposing it has you know kind of like a fountain in the front with like a circle drive through anyway um and the family is is the head and the the um my friend's mom is the CEO of a pretty important business in that part of the world in the Midwest. So I just, man, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's so bizarre to read this, but yeah, that's <laughs> fair play. I don't think, and I guess it's, it was a little journalistic check in a way. Cause I was like, I wonder what she's going to say about this. And yeah, those, those descriptions check out for me. And so I just thought that was so bizarre to read. <laughs> that's so fun though. I know. Yeah. Yeah. In a way it is, it is kind of fun to see people sort of an outsider come into your town and take it very seriously and like try and understand the people and the happenings and everything. Um, I think I have a more serious answer, but it also it is dependent upon my background knowledge of Janesville and the, and the region on page 54. One of the early things that that economic group for Janesville is focused on is trying to pitch the County as a unit instead of just Janesville. Cause Janesville is not the only city in that County. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beloit is the other big city in the County. Beloit is a town that is split in half by Wisconsin and Illinois. It's like literally on the border. Oh. Most of Beloit is in Wisconsin, but there is South Beloit, which is in, in Illinois. And that divide between those when I was growing up is like no joke. If you live in one, you just don't go to the other one. It's huh. like a, and they're very close. I mean, this is, I, we, um, I, I currently live in Charlotte. Like it's the distance of getting from like less than one half of Charlotte to the other. Like if you lived in, I don't know, like Southern Charlotte, Ballantyne, mm-hmm. you know, you do that 20 minute drive, maybe get uptown or North uptown. Like it's about that far away, probably closer. And so yeah, you could see in a, in an ideal world, like these two towns could offer complementary things. They could interact, and they kind of you know they try and eventually pitch it that way. It's just like, for example, ludicrous to think that a person in Beloit couldn't have a job in Janesville and vice versa. Like you can get to one in seven minutes driving, you know. So it's just it's like yeah. really crazy to think that these cities would be competing and not trying to do complementary things. And, but that's a hundred percent true. That is not a exaggeration in the book that there's this kind of like quiet war brooding and that it was a legitimate persuasive pitch for forward Janesville to have to make that work and kind of like make that a focal point. Um, that, that is for real. Um, and there's a lot built up in that. I think economic and race plays a part in that for sure. Yeah. For, for people, whether they want to admit that or believe that or not, I think both of those factors are, there are perceptions of one and of the other, uh, that I think those two things are, are legitimate factors. I will say, when I got to college and wasn't so much caring about Rock County's problems, I ended up discovering places in Beloit. I thought it was such a cool town. Like I, I think Beloit as it is right now has like better like restaurants maybe than Janesville. And it's, it's a little less chainy. Janesville's bigger. So, but it has more, it's, you know, it's your Applebee's and Olive Garden, but Beloit has more kind of like actual local businesses, more eclectic stuff. And it, I think it has a cooler downtown maybe. I don't know. It's so I feel more neutral now, but growing up, I, yeah, I like never, ever went to Beloit for no reason. Um, so, <laughs> so you <laughs> have a no friends way. there. Yeah. I'll try and do fewer digressions about my own experience. We'll talk more about the book, but anyway, when that is brought up and that's made forward, Janesville's like Diane Hendricks, the billionaire who comes in her business mm-hmm. is in Beloit. Them trying to patch that up is not a, that is not exaggerative or, you know, at least that not to me. Yeah. That was that was one of the things that I was curious about, actually, while I was reading, um, because I knew that you're from there. Um, yeah, yeah. And 
and Drew as well, who I also know. So I was yes. like, I yeah. wonder whether they would say that her depictions of the town and the people within the town are are correct or pretty spot on. Um, do you think that the she keeps talking about the the can she uses the term can do spirit um, a lot yes. with Janesville? Yeah, I think in a way it is that weird when politicians try and evoke like uh, the real America is the small towns and the, you know, it's not the city, it's not the elites or what. Janesville does have that kind of going on in a very strange way now that I look back on my own childhood and everything. Mm -hmm. I do think that when I was growing up there, and this could have been because of my grandpa, who was a pretty important person in the town, like he and his wife founded Rotary Gardens, which is now probably one of the more it's like one of the attractions of Janesville. It's just like really well-kept um, gardens that has expanded in a huge way. It's a big, it's just a big draw for the town. But so he was pretty engaged. He was pretty plugged in. Like he worked for Parker Penn company, which they detail mm -hmm. now, granted when he was there, it was not in its heyday, but it was still like a, an internationally known business that Janesville had, which I know the book mentions too. So anyway, all that is to say, maybe it was just his influence. Cause he was tied in, but like, I was doing volunteer stuff a lot. There was a lot of just activities going on. I feel like there's, you know, not every weekend, but a lot of times there there were just events or things to go see or do or, oh, we're going to go to this sponsored thing or we're going to go to that. And so I just think, yeah, people in Janesville, I mean, this is painting in way too broad a brush, but I think are pretty civically minded or at least were. So I don't think it's an overcharacterization. It's not like a, some utopian place. But it is that mid-sized town where you'll be annoyed maybe growing up there that you know everybody, kind of, but also you kind of can't because the town's split in half. There's two rival high schools, so it's not like you're not in that one school town where you feel trapped per se, but you do feel like it's small enough where everyone's kind of in it together attitude. And um, as the book in mm -hmm. the first half even begins to unravel, when a massive job creator you know, that pays probably not, I'm not speaking as an economist here, but like based on the, the labor required, like pays out more than apparently it should. And is like a really amazing job when that goes away, then, you know, fissures start to exist right. that perhaps did not. So yeah, that would be my take on it. And I'll, I'll try and keep the personal anecdotes toned down a little bit, but I did, I did pick this out of my own curiosity and seeing somebody come into your hometown and do a kind of, analytical take on it is pretty interesting yeah i would say so i do have yeah. um, one more question for you real quick sure. what i found yeah. interesting too in the no uh, novel in the book was that yeah. um the labor day festivals it seems like the, the way that she described them it was like a huge the the parade and like it yeah. was almost like a yeah. week-long festival um was that accurate like is labor was that labor day like an actual like big event yes labor day the parade 100 percent. i remember doing and going to it as a child at some point i probably stopped because i turned into a teen and was just like it's like fireworks right they're so entertaining for a while and then you hit an age where there's just a hard i've seen this before i'm not going kind of a vibe but oh yeah i went to uh, probably from the ages of you know like five to twelve uh, every Labor Day parade. Now, the f whole four-day multi-day thing, I think that's more on the kind of maybe like professional end. I know that there is, there's a corn roast, and I've definitely gone to that. My mom is part of an organization that still sponsors that. That's a big deal. It's like there's this huge mud volleyball tournament that we would go watch. I, I've never partaken in that, though probably should have because that would have been fun. <laughs> but um, 
The Labor Day thing is no, yeah, that did not seem over-exaggerated. The whole four-day thing, I can't say I remember doing, you know, four consecutive days of, like, Labor Day celebrations, but I get the feeling some of those days were probably more, like, business-focused. Like, oh, we're going to host a convention or something where businesses can, you know, meet and greet or do some kind of sales pitches or I don't know. I, I have to assume some of those things are not so much for like kids to do <laughs> the yeah. parade is kind of the kid thing and oh yeah we did that for sure i remember i remember seeing many of those going down to like main street and watching the parade it it, it has to be a town per cap on a per capita level that outperforms in a lot of civic ways again not in a you know in an absolute terms, like I'm sure Charlotte's, you know, we could take a Charlotte area nonprofit or volunteer group and be like, well, they, well, they have 10,000 members, you know, what do you, what do you have Janesville? But in a per capita basis, I bet it is outperforming or, or, you know, was in a certain time, like most places in America, you know, it's a 60,000 person town. So yeah, I think it's pretty civically minded and the Labor Day thing is, yeah, also that is a thing. Hmm. Don't sleep on uh, people in Wisconsin or any cold weather area of the country, they go hard in the summer. They're like trying, they're like actively trying to do things, <laughs> you know, maybe not, um, maybe not as much as you people would want or something, but you got to take advantage when the weather is not really brutal and cold. You got to get out there. Yeah. The, so uh, that is, that is for real. Are you saying you have... did not grow up doing Labor Day parades? No, I did not. Um, but, oh, man. um, because I, my family lives up in Maine in a, in a well they call themselves a city there's not even a stoplight in this city um a town <laughs> they, then <laughs> <laughs> maybe in a town um but the the biggest thing for them um and for me growing up there um i would spend my entire summer there was the fourth of july parade and people from all over oh, yeah. the state would come to um eastport because eastport is um the most easternly city in the united states which means that uh, 4th of July, like the sun hits us first, right? So oh, everybody yeah, would yeah. come for that. And it was, it was like a week long, sometimes two weeks long celebration. And we would have like, there's a kid's beauty pageant. There was a blueberry pie eating contest, like all the, all the wholesome stuff that you don't hear as much about nowadays, um, that we would do there. But yeah, Labor Day, not really. Although now they're doing the pirate festival up there. Um, in place of that so you got to make your name however you can pirate festival <laughs> you know i'm i'm more of a space star wars convention you know make, make, give <laughs> yeah. us your star wars convention uh jack sparrow day you know mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of room for pirate pirate jokes and innovate although it's like you know you do the eye patch and the peg leg like what's new what's a new pirate thing we can do just have a bird? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. I just feel like it's a it's a territory that maybe has been over not overexplored, but I don't know what the new the new rich territory is for pirate de decor, pirate yeah. clothes. We'll we'll have to put out the word. And listeners, if you have any thoughts on that, I'll plug the email at some point. You can send that in. <laughs> Let's move to our next segment for this uh, book club part one here, Amanda. Yep. This is going to be a segment we're going to call for now. Please continue. Make it stop. You and I have each chosen one thing in the first half of the work that one thing we want to continue. So one thing we're enjoying and we think is making the work better. And then we had to pick one that we want to stop and we don't think is working or just like a light criticism we wanted to present. Why don't you pick one to start with and give us your please continue or make it stop? 
Sure. I'll start with um, I'll start with something negative so that I can end on a positive. There we go. Um, <laughs> so I'll go with my make it stop. I said um, that I didn't care as much for Goldstein's insertion of the motivations for some of the people in the book. <laughs> for specifically some of the characters like Mary, where she kind yeah. of yeah. tries to delve into the psychology for why these people do what they do. It, for me felt a bit forced and not as as well done as the rest of the story because this is this is a piece of journalism this is meant to be nonfiction. this is meant to be you know fact-based and things that we can you know actually observe right but people's motivations while we can perhaps infer them right and unless they but but we can't know them for sure and it just seems like she's kind of forcing uh, particular personality traits and characteristics on some of these people that I felt like, uh, unless they actually tell you, how can you make those assumptions? Yeah. And that might be yeah. me just being nitpicky because this is meant to be nonfiction. Cause like with character work and fiction, like I'm all about that. Right. I love that stuff. But, but in nonfiction, I think that it, for me, it doesn't work like that. It's yeah. risky. People aren't superheroes. The the Mary anecdote, especially, yeah. The number of times it's drawn upon, um, and we, you know, this is especially for part one. We're not trying to spoil part two, but it doesn't stop. Like that continues. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I won't say why or how, but uh, it feels like a superhero thing. Like right. oh, Batman's parents were murdered. Remember? Like ah, yeah. it was a it's childhood trauma. I, I have to imagine, I know, you know, I can't speak to the reporting, but the, the sourcing in the back is quite thorough. Uh, yeah. It was researched uh, well and, and received many awards. And so I, I have to feel like it, at least in some ways was accurate. At some point, obviously, Mary told Amy Goldstein this story. Like that happened right. for sure. I, the amount to which she ascribes it or, or the lengths to which she references it, I agree with that one. Now, this is funny because I'm going to use that as a jumping off to contrast because my please continue is, I think that there's a lot of psychology in this, especially with the people who are job seeking that I really liked. And mm -hmm. I think it shows some of the dynamics when you're trying to pick a new career or even just a career, the kind of psychological, the, the, the tears that you feel in that process. So my please continue is like, keep the psychology coming. But I think I'm mostly like for the job seeking. I think, I think the Mary stuff is an overreach or an overplay. I agree. Yeah. But the, so I'll give a quote from 81 about this. This is when uh, Jared goes back to school at Blackhawk tech to try and pick a new career. And he follows the, the people doing the electrician stuff. And he is trying to climb a pole, you know, doing a practice climb to get to the top to like repair a, a, a electronic wire. What am I trying to say? A power line, power line, the, the power, the power pole. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he slides to the ground, the rough wooden surface scraping his chest all the way down as he clings to the pole. By the time he hits the ground terrified, his skin raw, Jared considers the fact that this is just a practice pole. What would have happened if he were on a real pole 30 feet in the air when he lost his footing and fell? How much good would he be for Tammy and the kids then? And then besides, they talk about how the jobs might not be there, the 401k might, not, might shrink or not be there. What if he can't get a job at the end? Like, it's a very... It's a very practical moment because in job training, I think, is kind of a political salve. People are just like, you know, I, I worked A, but go ahead and plug me into Z. Like, I can just start up a new career. 
but mm. the the hurdles to that can be both small and big and i think this is just a great moment to show the small and the big like the big one is well can i even get a job or is my 401k going to be all right or like is it going to pay enough like those are the big picture but it's the subtle stuff too like well i used to be able to do this task and like i'd like to think i could talk myself into doing to this task but you know in that case like maybe i'm physically afraid maybe mentally i can't do it um Gosh, I really want to spoil something from him in the second half of the book, but I won't. I'll just say that <laughs> you think people can be copy-pasted into different labor roles, and I just don't think it's as simple as people expect at times, and those can be because of psychology or just practical things. And I thought that moment was such a good description or just a little example of how you know, you can line yourself up. I, he went back to school. He kind of checked all the boxes people would want, but then what if at the end of it you're like, I just can't, my, I don't, my brain does not compute with this work. I, my brain doesn't want to do this. I'm scared of it. I don't like it. It, it stresses me out or gives me anxiety. Like, yeah, I just think that the, the hurdles presented in it are pretty, I thought were pretty thorough and I like that. And I, you know, hope the second half continues it. I will say that it does. <laughs> I think to the difference between the way that she handled those who were looking for jobs versus the people who were working towards, um, creating opportunities and, and making sure that everybody's taken care of is that she specifically discusses like past for them and like jumps to conclusions about those past events for them versus with the way that she depicts the, the people who are searching for um, employment. Now the ones who are hurting, she doesn't actually like delve into their past. What she does instead is she kind of explores their actual behavior. So we get to see evidence of their motivations and like their anxieties and stuff like that. So it's a different depiction, which is why I was totally okay with that. And I enjoyed that. It was the, the motivations of the helpers, those who wanted to help that I thought was more forced. Very well said. I think that's a great, that's a very succinct and I think extremely well put description of the contrast between them. Yeah, just the childhood trauma stuff. Can we, can we get into other motivations? It's (laughs) Mary's such an interesting figure in it too, because of, you know, there are figures in the book who meet tragic ends and there are figures who meet neutral ends. And I would say Mary's a figure who meets a very happy ending and Mm -hmm. there are others who do i mean you know the politicians more or less do even though like scott walker i don't think was reelected. they kind of gave him the boot eventually which the book doesn't go that far ahead in time so it's like but you know he's still a national figure he still goes on top like it's not like he's going to be in financial ruin when this is even though he you know made a bunch of extremely important and potent political decisions but yeah, I think Mary's one in the book who you just look at, and yeah, her life is better. Like she's got a better job at her bank. She remarried at some point, I think, in the back half. And again, I'll try not to spoil other things. But yeah, no, it's a big difference between how those people are portrayed. Um, what is your right. please continue for the first half of the book? Um, what I enjoyed was at the the beginning, she's talking about um, comparing the employees of GM to refugees from both GM and Lear. Actually, she specifically refers to them as Lear refugees and GM refugees, which, um, and she uses like the, the refugee imagery as well in a lot of the descriptions of the groups of people and the, and what they're going through. And I really like that because I think that's a really concise, like she doesn't overplay it or anything like that. And she, she just gets that feeling of, you know, a government letting you down and you have to kind of flee something, right? You have to, to kind of make your own way and not be able to rely on your government that 
you know, you're, you should be able to rely on to help you and to keep you safe. And the idea of like escaping and searching for something better, the helplessness and the state of, of being in a kind of limbo. I think that it was just a really great comparison. And I think that that's just one type of comparison that she uses, but generally speaking, her metaphors and her similes are are really well done. Yeah. The first half of the book, I think does a great job too, of presenting the What's the expression? The Sophie's choice, the catch 22. I'm sure we could find some literary reference, but just Mm -hmm. the idea that you have, it's sort of at the beginning when GM closes, people are given options there. They have options to transfer. They have options to take a payout. They have options. Some have options to leave like at one point and then later get the option to leave again if they choose. And, you know, at every stage you're trying to weigh all these decisions. And what that results in is this band of, yeah, I think the refugee kind of metaphor is apt, though a fine line to walk to be sure. You know, that's not, those are not images you want to evoke lightly, given I, you right. know, some of the sta- status of like country to country refugees in the globe, on the globe, that, that can, the kind of turmoil of that can be sort of in another level, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Some of the financial stuff that they're put into is, I think you're right. That's, I wonder if by the end of the book, you'll agree that that comparison was well-realized. I think there's a chapter in the back half that makes it so, but again, we, you know, we'll avoid spoiling the back half here. Yeah. My make it stop then for the front half. And, and I even wrote down, and I guess full disclosure on the process, I did fill out this doc when I hit halfway, like I stopped reading and filled this out. So (laughs) I, I did not finish the whole thing and then split it in half. I felt like that would be artificial. Like I wanted to get genuine reactions to the front and back half. My make it stop, I even wrote, obviously this won't stop. I don't know if I love the version that is chronological, like the way that obviously the book goes by year. So it's like, here's this year, we're going to check in with all of our characters, quote unquote, and kind of update their stories and focus on some more than others and bounce between them, all that stuff. I almost feel like I would want the version of this book that just picked maybe three of the people and then made the book about them and gave them each their own little section with their own journey, where it's kind of like right in the beginning of the book, you say, okay, GM closed. Here was the broad economic impact of it. Here's the jobs were lost. And now we're going to share with you three different journeys of how this can go. Here's Mary who turned out pretty well, even though it closed. Here's Jared who turned out, you know, like, I don't know, maybe in the middle rather. And then here is the two women who end up going to the jail, which... I, yeah, it does not end well, I think, without spoiling again. Um, So, yeah, and again, I know it's not going to stop doing the chronology. I just think the the way it shifts between them, I think it, sometimes I was wondering about some of the cause and effect of it all. Like, okay, but then did did they offer them this package to leave or like, Oh, did he get that one or not? Or did she get an offer to do this? Or like, Oh, when did, when did this grant go to Blackhawk tech? Or like, when was this job job program open for this person? And I just think some of that stuff is a little complex, but the writing style keeps up with it. Right? Like I never Mm -hmm. felt confused. Did you feel that way? Yeah. I was never really confused at first. I was like, Oh man, how am I going to keep these people in my mind? And Especially, I think, with the Wopats, because, like, the dad is Marv and the son is Matt. I was just like, oh, man, I got to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, the cast of characters actually um, helped with keeping that in, uh, on track for me. But also, as you get more involved in their stories, it's easier to remember who they are. Yeah. And she does give, give a nice little summary, like, of, hey, by the way, this is the person and let me continue their story. 
at the beginning of a lot of these chapters, there is like, if you start to pay attention to it, there are like half sentences where she's clearly just trying to reimmerse you yeah. <laughs> or like trying to describe them again. And so, yeah, it'll be, you know, like I'm I just open to a random Marv uh, Wopat one. By his final day, Marv had put in 40 years and four months at the assembly plant. At 61, he is like... I'm sure we were already told that he had retired and was there for a long time, but those descriptions kind of litter the book almost just to hit your brain with a little refresher. It's like, all, all right, right, remember this is, he did this. This is what you need to know about him. Hit, hit. And it just kind of, yeah, it sort of updates you. That was, that was a quote from page 24. So yeah, I think the book is really well constructed and it must've been a de- delicate editing dance too, to like make this coherent. I think mm-hmm. it's coherent. I just, the reason I kept it as my make it stop is just because as I read that first half, I couldn't help but wonder if we had maybe reduced the scope, maybe made some of those main characters, quote unquote, like just references and just really picked like three of these people to give their full, the, the like the full story. But um, I could be over kind of like oversimplifying that in my, in that presentation. So any, did you do your make it Please continue. You did. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Any other thoughts on the front half, things you liked or disliked? No, I found it really engaging. And actually, like, I, I finished the entire book, like, in not very long. It was it was just mm-hmm. such a fast and easy read. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I enjoyed it. Let's, let's move to our final segment for part one of the book club, then, which is going to be <laughs> what I've deemed cocktail party quotes. This is unique to, I think, nonfiction. I think people read nonfiction for a whole host of reasons. Sometimes it's professional, personal interest, like trying to plug in some gaps of knowledge, trying to learn something you feel ignorant about, whatever. And then I think the the cocktail party quotes idea is just sometimes people need, read nonfiction because at the end of it, they want to go like, oh, cool. Did you know this? And I think that's a pretty common experience when reading nonfiction where you're just like, oh, shit, I never knew about blank or, oh, man, did you ever hear about this event or this person? Or And so I think what we want to do in these episodes is pick out what you and I responded most to in that cocktail party quote fashion of just what would you want to bring? You're talking with your friends, you're chatting, you're just talking about the issues of the day or some topic. You think this would be an interesting thing to discuss or it would be meaningful or just like has the wow factor maybe. I'll let you interpret the cocktail party part as you want to, but why don't you start us off with a quote that you'll remember or that you think was really noteworthy from part one? Um, so I'll start off on on page three. Um, It says, in Janesville's long history of making things, two figures stand out. They are homegrown captains of industry, obscure to most Americans, but legend to every Janesville school kid. They shape the city's identity along with its economy. So I found this really interesting in that there's a direct link between economy and identity, and not just town identity, but each person's identity. And so I found that and, and and that's something that I think that Amy Goldstein explores throughout the entire book um, is the idea of how how they not only have to rebuild for you know financial reasons but they have been stripped of of who they are as people. I am a GM worker. I am a Lear worker, and now they are not. So they have to find themselves in another way. And I just found that really interesting. And if we kind of extrapolate that and and, and think about the United States, for example, being definitely our economy defines us in a lot of ways, right? We're we're a powerhouse in the world because of our economy. And what is that going to yeah. do to our identity when we're not? So it's it's a really something that I would love to really delve into is just that kind of discussion, I think. And yeah, I and in that, that in that way, it, it's fascinating that 
Janesville, in a sense, showed, even in the front half of this book, that it's sort of the the large economic forces deter- almost, like, created the civic the strength civic strength like it you know mm-hmm. drove engagement they i know they reference in the front half the kind of welfare capitalism of parker the parker pen guy and how he he made his employees feel proud and he gave them benefits and they kind of responded in kind and really took to it and yada yada and so and so maybe that helped drive some of the volunteerism or the civic organizations in the town that thrive there and so yeah, I think actually, let me pull a quote because I pulled the cocktail party quote about that same thing. Now that I'm looking at mine, I did oh, pull nice. a quote about Parker Penn doing that and kind of having that environment. It's from page 96. I'm just pulling it up quick. Um, it's actually, no, instead it's from page 97. It says, um, and by 1900, the Parker Penn business had large contracts to sell pens at the federal government and a main street address for its four-story factory and sales office. And then it says, as his business grew, so did a paternalistic generosity that Parker showered on his workers, typical of the welfare capitalism of the day, intended to foster loyalty and to ward off unrest. A clubhouse for employee parties, Camp Cheerio on the grounds of his summer house in the River's Bluff, a housing development, Parkwood, for company executives. By the 1920s, he was patron of the Parker Penn Concert Band, purchasing instruments for musicians if they needed help, and furnishing company vehicles um, to convey players to concerts. He, and then he it goes on to mention a couple other things that he did to kind of, I don't know, give back, foster you know, belief in him and maybe his kind of good standing and good reputation. That idea is, I think, fascinating, both in the historical sense of that era of industry mm-hmm. and capital, but also current day, because these are the things you hear at sort of the mega tech companies. You hear them rolling things like this out. You know, it's like the Google campus idea or Apple campus where it's like, man, you can do, they have yoga class there. Like, oh, they get free food. Oh, they, they, there are perks that are kind of showered. They're trying to build in, you know, uh, maybe not a reliance on the company, but a feeling that it's an all-in-one care uh, we will care for you work for us vibe right and then you know and then you see that coming to heads like facebook employees are now just openly unionizing and rebelling against facebook and i'm sure they have i'm sure they have all kinds of per- i bet they have concerts on their campus i know i know they have speakers come and they offer that as a perk and it's perks left and right but yeah at some point i don't know how well that holds up when compared to just a wandering purposelessness in your work or a feeling that you're contributing to something really bad. And so I just think it's the example there contrasted against maybe current events would be a really good quote to bring or just a, was it makes for a fascinating idea. And I think too, it does drive some questions that are interesting about, well, you know, which comes first then? Like, does the character of the town come first or did him doing that like did him doing that reveal the character of the town and amplify it or did it literally generate it like did someone like him running his business that way create this notion of the people in the town like oh we can give back or you know oh we can uphold our civic institutions and and create new ones and and do more generosity and giving and stuff and so i think it, it observes those things well i don't know if it has an answer maybe it comes out on the side of kind of the economics of things driving that stuff but i think without said this a hundred times without spoiling the back half but i think there's still signs that that character is alive but you know will it stay alive and will it thrive without an economic force like that i guess is it's all tbd so i just yeah i thought that quote was had some interesting connections yeah when i read that um i immediately like 
discussed it with my husband, actually. I was like, man, you know, you don't hear, you hear about like companies, big companies doing things for, um, like he, even here in Charlotte, Red Ventures, where they have an amazing yeah, facility yeah. for their workers, but you don't hear as much about companies extending that beyond their own company, right? So Parker yeah, right. did stuff for Janesville, all of Janesville, not just the workers, right? And, and yeah. so perhaps that's why there is that loyalty is it's not just the worker who gets that benefit, but the worker's families, the worker's friends, people yep. who don't necessarily work with that person. And so there is that loyalty there. I think that perhaps like big companies like Facebook and Red Ventures is like, yeah, these are great perks, but like my family still isn't being taken care of necessarily. So yeah, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. That's what creates the, that's probably where the term community help in part comes from in our current understanding is you got to, you have to interlink those social webs, right? You can't right. have one that is so, so separate from the others, you know? And yeah, that's a, that's a good example in Charlotte too. Red Ventures is kind of that, that tech reputation or tech company reputation in, in our immediate surroundings for sure. Right. Yeah. No, I don't know if there's clear conclusions, but I think, yeah, it does raise questions. I, I guess the thing I've been more privy to in my time being at a public school in like a smaller, like midsize like, company, but the, the kind of like anything but the high end versions of that stuff just comes across as so pathetic. I think workers yeah. these days are really <laughs> disillusioned against it. And it's always just like, fuck you, pay me. Like a pizza party doesn't mean shit, man. Like yeah. I really don't care. It's, and I don't want a $10 gift card. Like I want my wages to be better and yeah. like, and like, so, or like my conditions to be better. So I, I don't know if it's the times or this is, you know, we're getting into really big economic questions, which are for a different book study maybe, but I just think any version of this that isn't like on the high, high end, I feel like workers are really disillusioned against that stuff these days. I, I don't know for better and worse in my mind for better. Cause fuck a pizza party, man. I don't give a shit. Like <laughs> pay me more money, <laughs> you know, like help me with my hours or whatever. Like I don't want a fucking free meal. <laughs> um, and so at any rate, that's my, my own strong take on it. What other uh, cocktail party quotes do you have here? You want to talk through? Sure. Um, on the last two paragraphs on page 137, uh, there Barb, who's one of the um, the the workers who at I believe Lear actually. Um, anyway, so she is quitting to pursue a bachelor's degree because she hates her job. She was one of the two who had gotten the job at the jail. Ah, and then she's the one who left. Got it. Yes. yes. Tra- um, what was the other one? Tracy. Christy. Christy. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so Barb had gotten her associate's degree. She had gone into the jail with Christy and she hated her job so much and she wanted to continue getting her bachelor's degree. But then she was so afraid of, of losing that paycheck, especially since her husband was still pursuing his degree. So there would be no right. paycheck aside from what they were making for the school, which was not enough for two people to live on necessarily. So what I found interesting about that was the mindset that um, we have that a lot of people have nowadays, which is the, the do what you love mantra, which even the GM workers before this point, right? It's not necessarily that they loved their job, right? It was almost none of them. It's an yeah. extremely <laughs> important point that the book, that the book brings up almost none. In fact, basically none. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an essential thing that the book does not stare that the book stares down, which is crucial that it does. 
yeah, it's it's about the security of it versus the yeah the feeling of like, hey, I'm accomplishing something. So I I found this interesting because the idea then of the do what you love thing, which everybody like not everybody, but a lot of people are spouting, it's just like that's not feasible, right? It, it's not really feasible. And and is that actually kind of an elitist attitude, right? Yeah, um, right. And how does that apply to like Barb and Barb's situation? But she is able to actually find, a, a, you know, whatever. But like, um, I won't say anything else about that. But like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I found yeah. that discussion really interesting and that depiction of like that, that, that insecurity, but the, the longing to do something that you know that you are better suited for. I, th- I found that really interesting. Right. No, it's, these are essential questions of labor that I think America as a country has, it's part of what makes American labor so complicated and ugly is that to, to just discuss in a broad way, because that is the myth that is told along with the, like, you'll always, if you put in the time, you'll always improve, you know, it'll right. always get better. That's the other part of the myth. But like, yeah, the whole follow your passions, do what you do what you, you know, want to want to pursue. It just, it can lead to such disastrous results. And yeah, it also pre- presents questions for certain families, usually from, yeah, lower economic means and ends right. that are just like unreasonable and put really undue pressure on people who, or maybe thinking they have to, you know, like putting two people in school at the same time, right? When you have a family, that's like a wild decision you have to make. That's a really precarious thing to do to your to your family, to your economics or whatever. If you don't have people who can financially back you during that, that there it just it raises a lot of questions. And I don't know if America has great answers to those questions other than we'll stick with it, kiddo. It'll be better right. you know and just you just go for it and so i don't yeah there, there's a a good sense of realism in the book in both halves and i think it yeah somber it's not somber but i think it sobers some of those ideas in a in a crucial way yeah speaking of labor myth uh the quote on page 25 i'm going to talk through my other cocktail party quote about marv is just extraordinary and i think it it deserves to be read and and really considered carefully I won't read the whole paragraph on 25, but I'll read part of it. It describes him, Like many in town who are around his age, Marv had been a farm kid. He grew up on a dairy farm in Elroy, Wisconsin, and joined the Navy two weeks after graduating from Elroy High School, turning down college scholarships he'd been offered as a promising enough football tackle to have been chosen MVP in the conference. The week before graduating and enlisting, he'd married his cheerleader girlfriend. Vietnam was raging, but he lucked out, uh, driving fire trucks at a Texas airfield. And then he, you know, 21, he moves to Janesville. In those days, young people were coming to Janesville from the farms and small towns up north. It was where good jobs were. General Motors was eager to hire big, strong farm boys like Marv, and he never worked anywhere else. That is just an utterly American story in the, the, I guess, many people consider the positive way, but is so dramatically disconnected from current day labor conditions that you can't help but read it. And just see it in your mind in black and white. Like, what world, you know, what what world is this where, I, I mean, I guess it's factory work is the answer where you can show up and that's why they call it unskilled labor. You can show up with no training and no expertise of any kind and fall into a lifelong, well-paying career. And that's it. it you're big and strong and from this region, here's a 40-year career with a pension. Like, that. it's such a foreign idea. Yeah. And I, I I, have one anecdote or one personal connection to this I can describe. 
my grandpa, who was of that generation and, and older, like he's older than Marv would have been for sure. Um, in college, once when, one summer I was having a hard time finding work, and throughout college I basically did temp work until I got an internship one one summer. Um, but until then, I was doing temp jobs around southern Wisconsin. But he drove me to a work site of like a construction work site, and he was basically just like, just go up there and talk to them, see if they have any job openings. They might give you something. And I just remember looking at him and being like, man, your idea of how to get a job is so. F- foreign like it's so (laughs) far gone man like what what, in what world do you just show up and say you know my i mean granted of course people work social connections all the time in the professional world like if if i would have dropped my grandpa's name at another place in janesville a a ton of people knew my grandpa so that part of it he wasn't playing up though he wasn't saying like go name drop me and get a job it was literally like if you don't have anything to do go to where people are working and ask about work and i was like jesus man like I, so I, when I walked up to him, I just kind of apologized. I didn't do what he said. I was I asked like, "Do you have a website or something?" And of course, they're like, "Yeah, you have to apply online. We need a resume. We need like, you know." It's just like, man, Grandpa, like you don't understand this world in any way. <laughs> and that I think that that Marv example really just hit me. Not that I knew a ton of people like him growing up, but it's such an American version of that story. The high school cheerleader thing is just the cherry on top. Like that's extra hilarious. That's like Americana 101. That's like insane right. that that is also <laughs> part of his story. That's like makes it almost comical in a way, but it was real. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just thought that that story. And then c- to contrast that against his son or grandson, I forget what the was it his son grandson son. Yeah, Yeah, to contrast that against his son's experience where his son has to like to have Marv's job, his son has to go to college, for example, Marv just walked into it like, right, he has to go to college now like that's a dead requirement for to even have a chance at the at a life like his. And you know, we're looking at a generation maybe where it's like, God, maybe even an undergrad isn't that it maybe doesn't matter much anymore. Like now it's kind of like, masters are bust for a lot of jobs, like they don't even want to talk to you unless you have a master's. And so yeah, it's just the requirements of labor and what gets you a comfortable life and how we define comfort. I think there's so much wrapped up in that that the book gets into. But just the Marv example contrasted against his son, I thought was probably the most poignant one. And that paragraph, man, is just an all time American paragraph. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just crazy to read it. It's just wild. <laughs> I'm a I'm a strong farm boy. Please give me a career now. OK, you know, <laughs> man. Uh, and maybe it's oversimplified, you know, maybe he had like, he did the military thing, uh, another like, I don't know, kind of American-ish path. Um, but, you know, the, just the, the cause and effect of that, no advanced education. And, you know, they talk about some of the GMers who were high school dropouts, like the notion of a high school dropout in 2021, being able to pick up a $30 an hour career is it's just ludicrous like I, that's just not the world i you know for better and worse and due to forces complex and simple that this book does not touch really but it yeah that's just not a thing that that occurs you know and maybe maybe in some towns right maybe where there are some assembly lines left and some factories left but yeah that quote really stuck with me yeah you ever you, you luck out amanda or did you end up in any factory jobs in your life <laughs> i uh well, through college and stuff, I also worked, um, but I just kind of, I, I did kind of just like walk up and be like, Hey, are there any jobs available? And then they would tell me where it is. But like, you always look for, I would always look for the person that looked like they were in charge. So they would actually know my face so that when I did apply, they'd be like, Oh right. yeah, she came up and talked to me. So I already know her. 
system. Like, yeah, that was, yeah, that gotta... was based on my dad's, um, like, telling me, like, hey, if you want a job, you just got to make yourself known. So Yeah, and I think a lot of those tricks of the trade, practical social things, still show up in our world. You know, it's like the, you know, the classic idea of, well, if you send your resume into a place blind, even if you're qualified, you know, it's, it's going to get buried to the bottom of the stack kind right. of a thing. And the and the whole idea of a of a factory so desperate that they're just like picking up farm boys left and right. It's just like man, those jobs would get thousands of applicants now, and yeah, people seriously. are are people are gonna like fight tooth and nail over each other to try and yeah. And I don't know, it, it all becomes a bit performative and ludicrous. But yeah, I thought Mar Marv's tale compared and contrasted with his son is probably maybe the thread in the story I enjoyed the most. I don't know, I didn't really think about it that way, but that was probably the one that maybe illustrates the American experience to me the most. Mm-hmm. Any final quotes that uh, make for good cocktail party fodder or otherwise? Nope. I'm good. Excellent. Okay. Well that I think covers part one of Janesville and American story. Any thoughts on part two? You want to give anybody words of warning? Cause you know, as we've been hinting at and ducking, we've finished the book by the time we're recording this. Any thoughts on the second half? Anything you want to tell the listeners before they get into it? Uh, part two has a lot more number crunching than part one did, but oh, it doesn't okay. detract from it, I think. I think that's fair. It's, yeah, more politicians maybe, though. Yeah. I know Paul Ryan shows up. The, the Scott Walker thing, which in, in Wisconsin's recent history uh, is probably the most inflammatory thing that's happened in the state in a long time. Like his whole tenure, his running, his policies, it b- became a huge uh, point of controversy. And the second half of the book introduces him and goes over that stuff pretty well. And so, yeah, they get into more of the governor Scott Walker stuff. So if that's a name you've heard, or if you want to research that, that's definitely covered well in the back half. So yeah, let's talk through some dates and logistics then before we close this one out. We, as I, we mentioned at the beginning, this was just part one of the Janesville and American story book club. Part two is coming out next Friday. We're going to release the book clubs every Friday and they, you know, come in part one, then part two. So on February the 12th, that is two twelve, we'll be releasing part two. Please have the book read by then or don't and just read it and listen to it some other time when you get a chance to. I think a week is pretty reasonable, but hey, you know, take your time and read at your own pace. And if you're trying to plan way ahead, the next book we'll be recommending and covering is called Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. This is a novel by, I would say, pretty famed contemporary Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. The prompt I gave Amanda for that one is that she had to pick a book by an author she's never read and is embarrassed to have never read, which I think is a crucial caveat. Yeah. Do you feel less embarrassed now that you've been reading some of it, Amanda, or more embarrassed? Or? Um, no, a little, a little less embarrassed. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I think that's a reasonable reaction. We'll be talking about that one soon. But yeah, if you're planning ahead and you want to get ready for the next book we're doing, that is it. It is Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World by Haruki Murakami. As always, we thank you so much for listening, and we will see you between the pages. 